God, apart from your work, we are in darkness. Apart from your spirit showing us truth, we can't understand, we can't comprehend. And so, Lord, first and foremost this morning, we confess our reliance on you to be able to understand what we hear. Spirit of God, through the word of God, shine a light. Uh, help us to see the truth on the pages of Scripture. And I pray particularly, help us to see Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a question at the front end of our text. There's a question that this set of verses really centrally addresses. And maybe one way of getting at that question is um, to encourage us to set our minds back to the end of the 1998 film Saving Private Ryan. Okay, so the end scene of Saving Private Ryan, you see this old World War II vet walking his way to this war memorial, being followed along by his family, his children, his grandchildren, you know, and finally at the end, you know, he reaches the memorial, goes down on one knee, and through tears, in the, there's one particular memorial that he goes to, this captain, and through tears he says something like, I've tried to live a good life, I've tried to be a good man, you know, I've never stopped thinking about that thing that you told me on the bridge that day, and I've tried to earn this. I've really tried to earn it. Why did, why did he say this? Well, because as we go back and look at the, the film, it's about it's the story, fictional story, about this, um, this group of soldiers who were ordered into enemy territory during World War II to save Private Ryan. There was a soldier whose brothers had died, and the war department did not want a mother to be robbed of three children in a matter of just a couple of weeks. So they send this platoon of soldiers in to save Private Ryan, James Ryan. And throughout that movie, what we come to see and experience is something of a tension, right? Because understandably so, the men who are sent to save Private Ryan are kind of doing so in a grumbling fashion. Right? They don't understand the mission they've been sent on. See, from their perspective, they're saying, like, look, we, we all have mothers. You know, all of us have mothers that if they lost us, like, what makes this person special? What makes them unique? And so we see that actually alluded to throughout the film where they're like, man, he'd better be worth it. To the point, in the end, when this captain who gives his life for Private Ryan kind of looks, with his dying breaths, looks at, at James Ryan and he says, Earn this. Earn this, right? But through the film, what you come to see is like, you get to the end, and this person who they've been searching for the whole time, he's just an average soldier. You know, there isn't something unique or special about the individual other than he's the soldier. And so this, this story was less about rescuing Ryan because he was somehow deserving of being rescued and more about the, the grace, the mercy, the sacrifice of those who actually did lay their lives down to rescue him in, in the story, right? And I think this is the best modern storytelling example I could think of to illustrate the question that John 1 sets out to answer, which is also like the, the title of the sermon this morning if you look at your notes page. So, whose goodness, you know? As they were 
heading into enemy territory. Like they, they were, they were uh, risking their lives. Many of them laid down their lives for the sake of rescuing Ryan. And this, the question is, who, whose goodness was that rescue mission based on? Was it based on Ryan's goodness? Was he so special? Was he so worthy? Or was it the goodness of those who laid their lives down? In other words, over the last three weeks, we've seen, okay, we've seen first the identity of this person that John chapter 1 immediately sets out to talk to us about. So immediately sets our attention on. The Word, right? So John, John's gospel is, account is an account of the life of Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. And he identifies Jesus right at the outset with this term, the Word. For John, the Word, the identity of the Word is the, the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity, God himself, who entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the word. That's his identity. But last week we moved from identity to activity. We had the chance to see that this word, he was active before creation. You know, this eternal decree of Christ. He was active in creation itself. He created all things that were not him. Right? And then he's also active in new creation as he comes to offer us this light and life. So let's remember the last set of verses together. Verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the text, we saw the beginning, we, we talked about it as the beginning of this problem. Namely, this word is coming into the world he created. He's coming on something of a rescue mission. Right? He's, he's coming to save because his people are in great need. We talked about this more in depth last week, but that's the gist of these verses, verses 4 and 5, on which now John will fully, more fully elaborate this morning. The world was in darkness, a spiritual darkness in which we couldn't follow God, couldn't understand God. The word came as a light into darkness, life into death, but perhaps a question on the minds of the readers is similar to the one we just discussed. Okay, Whose goodness? That is, you know, look, many of us, even, even those of us who are unchurched, right? So if you come here this morning and you have a lot of context for the Bible, or you come here this morning and you don't have any context and you're here to learn more about what the Scriptures say, many of us are still familiar with um, passages in Scripture like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what I'm saying is, at least some of the readers of John are looking at this, and they're asking the question, yeah, but why? You know, like, why did God so love the world? Why did God set out to rescue people? What is the nature of God's love for us? Who is the hero of this story? You know, why does he come? Upon whose goodness? Does he come into this world because, from his perspective, here is this world that's so good that it deserves rescue? Is it on the basis of the world's goodness? Or does he love the world on the basis of his own? And to answer these questions, so here's what we see. We see this light breaks into darkness, rescue mission, light into darkness so that we can see. But in the text this morning, we see four actions related to that light that breaks into darkness. Four actions that help, help us understand whose goodness is it that brings about this rescue mission? All right, so the first action we see in verse 6. Look there with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here we see the first action, which is the light retold. There's this retelling of this light again. And when I use word, the word retold, the retelling, I'm not saying that it's like a new way of telling about this Messiah. I'm simply saying it's a repetition that we continue to, to see throughout the scriptures. It's this echoing back to something that's already be, being said and echoing forward like we saw in Zechariah that this Messiah actually is coming. So remembering the last two weeks, what John has said about the word up to this point is going to be helpful for us here. What are the ultimate origins of the word? What are the ultimate origins of the word? Well, the ultimate origins of the word come from eternity past, right? That is to say, he has no origin in that sense. He has no beginning. But when it comes to what the word accomplished for us, Christians actually can very much point to a moment in history in which he accomplished something for us. In fact, if it doesn't happen in history, the Apostle Paul will later say that we're without hope in this world. So we, we can very much point to a time in history in which Jesus came because that's centrally why he came. And so while his ultimate origins are from eternity past, in which he has no beginning, he's, he's always been, the origins of his earthly ministry across all four Gospels begin with this figure in the Scriptures known as John the Baptist. And that's who John's talking about here. Now this is a little confusing because I'm going to be talking about John the author of the text, and John the Baptist, which is who he's talking about here. Two different people. And I was going to elaborate a little bit further on like, here we actually do see some internal evidence as to why I believe that John the disciple is the author of the text. We don't have time for it. I decided um, two full paragraphs, beautiful paragraphs that just had to be cut out. So if you have questions about that, if you're interested, come and talk to me afterwards. But here we see, you know, this John the Baptist... Someone sent from God who came to prepare the way, to proclaim in advance, to bear witness about the light, this word, this logos, telling us, like, he's coming, he's coming to save. He's coming to save us. Okay? And um, actually, came isn't probably the right word here. Some translations favor it. It's not a huge deal. Some translations say that there came a man sent from God. I think the ESV has it right. There was a man sent from God, not just came. And... That might seem subtle, I'm not trying to nitpick, but I only highlight it to say, I think it brings out the idea here that John was created for this purpose. Like John, the author, wants us to know that John the Baptist was put on this planet for this task to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. He was a forerunner to the Messiah's coming. In other words, it's not like he's, he came on his own initiative. It's that he was. He was placed by God. Right? And the text makes it clear that while this man, John the Baptist, was himself not the word, he was sent from God to tell people about this word. In other words, almost everything about this person of Jesus Christ finds its origins in God himself. God is the mover. God is the sender. You know? John the Baptist's not the mover. The hearers are not the mover. God himself is the mover. He's the center. The readers of this gospel will absolutely recognize 
this activity of God sending people to speak truth about who he is. They've already seen it. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how, the, okay, the readers, spiritually seeking Greeks and Jews who are in the synagogue and they know their Old Testament text. They want to know who is this Christ, this Messiah. And they've seen in, in the Old Testament text in the ministries of Moses and the prophets, men sent from God to bear witness about him to his people. And as they read this gospel account further, maybe they've already read it and this is a rereading here, that they'll, they'll find the author of this book using this language to describe even the ministry of Jesus himself. He was sent from God to declare the truth about God, to, to be the truth about God, declare the truth about God to God's people. So right after telling us, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, we read, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We read the sending language. We're going to have to come back to that later on this morning, but for now just note, there's this sending theme in which these forerunners of Jesus, those who come before him, Moses, prophets, the Old Testament text, John the Baptist, all point forward to this one who is ultimately sent for us. You know, we saw this previously this year as we worked through the uh, book of Zechariah, you know. We spent some time in Isaiah together at Advent. The foretelling of the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who is to come. And do you remember that these prophets that we looked at at Advent used strikingly similar language to the, ones, to the language we read here in John chapter 1? Do you remember this? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of darkness, on them light has shone. John, the author, uses this language to point back, to echo the prophets. John the Baptist comes with a similar message, proclaiming it to, to God's people. John the Baptist is bearing witness about Jesus. We're going to read more about his ministry in a couple of weeks. And he's doing this in order that those who hear this message might believe. That's what the text tells us. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? That all might believe through him. Do you remember why John is writing this? John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He's also writing that his readers might believe, so they share that purpose. John is also, John the author, is bearing witness. And in this account, we'll, we'll hear him describe a number of other people bearing witness, proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is, that others might believe. And you know, it's important just to point out the posture of all of these characters. It's like, John, the author, wants to be really careful to, to stay in the background of the text. Why? So that Jesus can be in the foreground. All right? John the Baptist actually says in his ministry, I must decrease that he may increase. You know, like, I stay in the background. He stays in the foreground. So this is the light retold. This is, again, this proclaiming ministry in which John the Baptist comes for something of a gospel retelling to point people again to this Messiah who is to come. Do you remember, do you remember that first part of the gospel definition we looked at last week? John wants his readers to know Jesus was the promised messianic king and son of God sent to earth as a servant in human form. So if the central question that a lot of these readers have is, who is the Christ? Right out of the gate, John is saying, it's Jesus. 
John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So, okay, the origins of Jesus' earthly ministry begin with John the Baptist proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is, the light retold. But now we see the light's finally revealed. You know, because there's a sense in which God's people, they've been waiting for so long. And we really got a sense of this, I feel like, in Zechariah. One of the many helpful things about studying Zechariah heading into a gospel account that I think will help us understand it better. Because imagine being God's people, and now for hundreds of years, they've heard this message that the king is coming. And Zechariah comes with this particular effort to give them assurance that that is absolutely the case. That God has not forgotten about them that the king is coming, that he's, he's going to come. Hundreds of years pass, 400 years of silence, right? And do God's people think, yeah, this is a God who tells us he's coming a lot, but is he actually coming? Well, we see the light is revealed. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. As Grant Osborne writes, he says, the word was not a purely supernatural phenomenon, but actually appeared on the stage of this world, right? So the, the word, as we said a, a couple weeks ago, the word is not, it's not this hypothetical thing. It's not like this piece of philosophy that helps us if we think about it, but it's just kind of purely metaphoric in nature. It's, it's not a supernatural phenomenon in its entirety, but rather it actually appeared on the stage of this world. God enters human history in the person of Jesus Christ. He steps into the world that he has made. We're going to have more to say on that when we get to verse 14 next week. But for now, let's just note exactly what it is that's being revealed according to John. The true light. The true light. What does that mean? True light. So we're going to come across this word true a lot in John's Gospel account, carries a lot of meaning in this text, in this context. On the one hand, throughout John, definitely in contemporary usage during the time in which John writes, this word true has the basic definition of like genuine, real, right? So true as opposed to false. And John, so, so true is a really good translation, right? So John uses it in this way to apply to a whole host of things, not just light. For instance, in, in his account, he'll use it to talk about true worshipers as opposed to false ones, right? Those who are true worshipers of God as opposed to those who make the claim to be true worshipers, but actually in their hearts they're not, okay? So he'll use it in this sense. And I, I think he's using it in that sense here too. Anyone who claims to be the light other than this word is speaking falsely. And there are certainly, you know, if, if there's, an, there's any particular area of your culture that holds out something to you as like, hey, this is the light. This is what shines into your darkness. This is actually what saves you. This is what will redeem you. This is what will make your life right again. And I would say we have those competing voices all week long in our context. We're always hearing these competing voices of like, hey, this is the true light, right? The true light comes not, you know, from something outside of yourself, but from within yourself we'll hear. Or the true light comes by way of this thing you can accomplish. John here writes, this is a false claim because the true light is, is bound up in the word. In other words, the true and genuine light. The true and genuine light. But I think there's another more complete meaning of true 
that John has in mind here, like that's one part of it, but it's only part of it. There's a more complete meaning. Yes, it, it's, it's true and genuine, but it's also more than that. And when we understand the full meaning of true, actually like whether you're here and you've been a Christian all of your life, or if you're here and you're just learning about the Bible for the first time, understanding this complete definition of true will help you understand your Bibles. It'll help you read your Bibles. Okay, so it's important for us. In other words, you have these realities. So it's not just true and genuine, it's true and ultimate. Or true and better. You have these realities in the Old Testament. These things that happen in the Old Testament text, right? And on the one hand, like, it actually happened that way. On the other hand, they point forward to Jesus. They foretell Jesus in a unique way. We call this typology. They serve as a type of Christ. In the Old Testament, we see it. So, so for instance, um, God provides for his people in the wilderness by giving them bread from heaven. And that provision was certainly from God. This was bread from heaven. It, that's, it, it was true in that sense, truly from him. But it was meant to point us to something more than just bread in the wilderness. Jesus will later make that claim in John. I'm not going to go into it in detail because we'll, we'll preach through it when we get there. But Jesus comes telling us he's the true and bre better bread from heaven, the true and ultimate bread from heaven, the one who could ultimately satisfy his people, right? Because in the Old Testament text, God's people were never satisfied. God provides and they were gathering more than they needed because they didn't trust him. They were never satisfied. Yet Jesus comes as the true and ultimate bread who, who, who does ultimately satisfy his people. We'll say the same thing said about the vine that was often used as a symbol for Israel. Jesus is the true and better vine, the true and ultimate vine, the one who could actually hold his people together and grow them in his mercy and grace. We'll see more of this as we go. But I think the text is saying Jesus is both the true and genuine light, the real light as opposed to false claims, but he's also the light by which the ultimate light, the light by which we might no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Before moving on now to the third action in the text, though, we do need to look at where this light was revealed, or to whom this light was revealed. And it's here that John tells us that it was revealed in the world. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This term in John, the world, was something of a technical term. So you're going to see it all over the place. Just by way of an example, I read two verses in chapter 3 already to you this morning. And in those two verses, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we see that word used four times. God so loved the world. The Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I point this out only to say we're going to see it all over the place. In John, it's worth asking how does John use this word in his writing? Like, what does he mean by it? Some have said that the word cosmos or world here is, is mostly a positive word about the world that God created. And certainly, as it, as it refers to God's creation, it is very positive. It should cause our minds to go back and remember Genesis chapter 1. What does God do? He creates, and then he says, he declares each time he creates, it is good. It is good, it is good. Then in chapter 2 we see he creates man and woman in his own image and it was good. Right? We're created in God's image. Okay, and so to the extent that it is referring to God's creation, 
absolutely, this, this world is good. But in John's writing, it becomes shorthand for something else entirely. Do you remember when we worked our way through Revelation? And the same author, John, would use this term. It became a technical term. We saw it all over the place. Earth dwellers. Earth dwellers. Earth dwellers, right. That term earth dweller became something of a theological shorthand for John to describe the world order that stood opposed to God. And by the way, like, there's no disagreement there. I fully understand that there's a lot of disagreement among scholarship in Revelation. Nobody disagrees about what John's trying to do with this term earth dweller. For everyone reading John, it's, it's very obvious. The earth dwellers are those who had rejected him, those who had made themselves his enemies. And here in John's gospel account, the word world actually comes to describe something very similar. Uh, one commentator notes it this way, the world, or frequently this world, is not the universe, but the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs, in, in rebellion against its maker. Rebellion against its maker. We're going to come back to this again, because it has far-reaching implications related to what John wants to communicate in this text specifically, like what he's interested in getting at. But this is the world into which this light is now revealed. This place of active rebellion, these people of active rebellion. And what does this light do in the world? Again, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What does this mean? If the world lives in darkness, if the world that John is primarily referring to is this created order in active rebellion against its maker, then in what sense... Can John write that this word gives light to everyone? Well, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, it definitely some people taking this out of context have used it to say, well, hey, here's universalism. Everyone's saved, regardless of what happens, regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether or not they receive Christ. But um, you really have to stretch that out of context to make this universalism. In the next few verses, it it becomes obvious that that's not the case, and we'll just get there. But as we'll see in John's larger gospel, as he unpacks the real problem of human sin that this world faces, what that means for us, I also don't think he's saying we're able to receive the light on the basis of you know, our eyes being so open and receptive, or our hearts being so pure. And so we're, you know, the light shines, and so we're able to respond rightly in our hearts. I, again, I also think that's, that's taking things out of context. I don't think it's saying that people who decide to become inclined toward God receive the light, but those who decide to stay in their sin reject him. Like, the reason I don't think that's what he's saying is because it would contradict the reality of a lot of what we've already looked at. The world cannot understand the light rightly anyways apart from his work, right? So, so what's needed? Not me, like, figuring something out, but rather God being gracious and merciful. And, and we're going to get into that even more. And so, what I think this verse means isn't so much that there's a contrast between those who respond rightly and those who do not. Um, if it did, I, here's what I think would happen. Christians would say, look at me. I mean, I responded rightly. What's wrong with those people? Okay. And again, we'll come back to that. I do think there's a contrast. You know, you might be saying, there's pretty clearly a contrast. Well, I do. I do think there's a contrast between those who see and those who don't. But the way it works here is, I think just to say, this light shines on everyone, 
whether they see it or not. The light shines on everyone whether they see it or not. I think John's point, in other words, is to emphasize how needy we are. The light shines us and we're not even aware of it. It's not to show how receptive we are. And to the degree that we see, you know, it's not because of me. It's not because of me. And you might think that's a stretch, but I'm, I think when we get to verse 13, that becomes really clear. And the reason I'd argue that this matters, you know, there's this really good theme that we've had in John so far, which is that doctrine matters, theology matters, what we believe about God matters. Everyone has a theology. You have to kind of have some form of a set of beliefs about like what, whether or not there's a God, what God would be cool with or not cool with, how God interacts with people, you know, in order to make daily decisions. There's an extent to which that's true for all of us. But okay, so theology really matters, okay? And we see that again here. The reason this matters is it starts to answer this question. Who's goodness? Who's the hero of the story? Who's the one worthy? Like I've said it before, but where I think we can often make a mistake as Christians is to assume that I became a Christian because I was so smart. Like those soldiers were, were hunting for James Ryan because James Ryan was so special. I'm a Christian because I'm so smart. I figured something out. I was clever. I was soft-hearted. In some sense, like, I was so good, and so Jesus came for me, and he made me his. And, and I think, like, the reason I push back on that, I've said it before, but if that's true, just by definition of what it means, and I, and I think this is where we need to think through our theology. This is why doctrines of grace really, really matter for the life of the church. If that's true, if I was a Christian because I was so smart, I figured something out, I was clever, I was soft-hearted, then by definition, what that means is that those who reject Christ must have done so because they were so dumb. They were so simple-minded. They were so hard-hearted. What's the root of sin in this world? You know, what's the root of like, what's the root of living in a way that abuses other people? Selfishness. Arrogance. And where does that come from in an ultimate kind of way? Me thinking I'm better than you, even just a little bit. Me thinking I'm better than other people. And so in the life of the church, we can often hold to this doctrine that says, I'm a Christian because of me in some sense. I'm a Christian because my heart was so receptive. And ever so subtly, we can look out into the culture or we can look across the pew, you know, at other people, look across the aisle at church or whatever, and we can say, or, we, or at Bible study or in small group or wherever in the life of the church, we can say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more receptive than you. I did this better than you. I figured out something that you didn't, and until you kind of measure up to me, right? It's very subtle. This is why the gospel matters, because it completely rejects the claim. John completely rejects the claim. And instead he tells us the playing field is totally leveled. You know, and, and there's this famous, okay, so it's, it's interesting. There's this famous evangelistic track. An evangelistic track is, um, I'm not entirely sure when the practice started, but there are these pieces of paper in which and they're still around today. I think they very much have their uses, but it's a piece of paper that in some way outlines the gospel or um, attempts to capture the good news of Jesus in a very succinct kind of way so that people can read it. And usually there's some kind of a prompt on an evangelistic track that helps us to think through, hey, what does this mean for me or whatever? 
So in the, in the early 1900s, there's this like famous tract. I remember seeing a picture of it in my textbooks at Moody. I couldn't find it, but I'm, I'd be interested to see it again. A single page made to look like something of a political ballot. Right? So it's this political ballot with these check marks, you know, places to check a box. At the top of the ballot was this question that said something like, where will you spend eternity? Okay? And there were three people who got a vote in that decision. Two of them had already voted. God had checked the box for heaven. Satan also voted. He checked the box for hell. And then at the bottom it said, you, was blank. You had yet to vote. At the bottom of the page it read something like, your vote decides the issue, or your vote decides the matter. I'm not throwing stones. I understand the sentiment. I will, I will repeat and say this is true. People uniquely need Jesus. They uniquely need his work. If they don't know Christ, if we don't know Christ, we will spend eternity apart from him, right? But this is not what John means when he says that the true light gives light to everyone, that it's somehow like the, the light shines in, and on the basis of my own response, on the basis of like, oh, God voted heaven, Satan voted hell, now I'm, I've got a blank vote here. It's not what it means. Um, in fact, the reason we'll spend eternity apart from God is precisely because that's what we want by nature of who we are. Guess what? We already voted. In the garden, we voted for hell. Our vote has been cast. It's done. That's what we want. And unless something comes to change the nature of our heart and to undo that, that's what we'll always want. So it shouldn't surprise us that we move, you know, light retold, ministry of John the Baptist, light revealed, God entering human history in the person of Jesus Christ, to now thirdly, the light rejected. This is what we wanted, the light rejected. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the Son came into the world, came into the very world he spoke into existence that we talked about the last couple of weeks. All right, so there's this creator-creation distinction. In the text, again, you have the creator, the word, and everything else that is not him, you know. You have the creator, God, the triune God, and then you have everything else. Creation is everything that is not him. So he steps into this world he created only to be rejected by this world he created. Note some of the basis in the text for the rejection. Do you remember last week that John wrote, this light, light shines into the darkness... And the darkness has not understood it, or the darkness has not overcome it. We said it could be translated too, depending on your, your translation. The darkness has not understood or, or did not grasp it. In other words, our, our minds and our hearts are darkened and we don't even know it. We don't recognize it. And because of our rebellion, you know, we don't recognize it, and it's not because we chose wrongly. You know, it is because of that, but that's tautology. That's like restating the obvious. That's like me saying, why is that building so full of people? And you answering by saying, because more people went in than came out. It's like, well, that's the definition of full of people. My question is, why is it so full of people? Here in the text, we see something similar where, you know, we couldn't respond rightly. Why? Not just because we didn't respond rightly, but because our, our hearts were so darkened by the rebellion that we can't even understand or comprehend him. Like the Apostle Paul, he talks this way. And we see this here, this idea of the natural man not being under, able to understand 
the things of God, to comprehend the things of God. Not only does his own creation reject the word, but the text says they do not know him. They do not know their creator. The light shines upon every person, whether they see it or not, and we did not see. This should remind the reader of sections of Scripture like Isaiah 65, 2-3. Like if you're, if you're saying, yeah, this isn't how Scripture talks about people. Truly it is. Isaiah 65, or Isaiah 65. I spread out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people that provoke me to my face continually. Or the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their necks. We see this picture of this God continually revealing himself to humanity. What does it show us? It doesn't show us a receptive people with hearts that are able to receive, or rather a people who were created in his image in order to be his people in his place under his rule, but who could not understand or believe because they cast their vote, because they, of their own sin and rebellion. And so they, instead they reject him. They stand against him. So, to summarize, and this really is the story. I mean, this is like Romans 1 through 3. If you ever read Romans, this is like a summary of chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 3. The light is retold, proclaimed again in the ministry of John the Baptist, telling people that Jesus is coming, the word is coming, the light is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That light shined on everyone, but we did not see it. We were blinded to it. And ultimately, to what degree we saw it, as we said last week, we hated it. Those who loved darkness rather than light, like Gollum, right? We were driven away from light into darkness. And we loved darkness so much that we couldn't even remember why we would have loved light in the first place, and we came to despise it. So the light was rejected. But that's not how that passage ends, you know? We don't get to Romans chapter 3, and when we hear, when we hear in chapter 1 that the gospel has been revealed in Christ, but that the wrath of God is due to us because of, we were so blind, and that that applies to everyone. In fact, no one seeks God. No, not one. No one understands. No one comprehends. We don't... Close our Bibles. Romans 3, like, that's the end of the story. We don't get to this section of John in which it's like the light was, re was foretold. He's coming. He's coming. The light came. The light was rejected because of the nature of who we are. And God does not sit in the heavenlies and say, I'm just going to watch them destroy themselves. And then we'll start I'll start over with a different creation that won't reject me. We don't see that. It's not how the passage ends, because finally we see the light received. The light received, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him. So there's hope. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so we read this. This is the light received. We read this and we should be saying, what? How? Like, I think, I think verse 12 in particular often gets lifted out of context a bit. And it makes it appear as though our salvation in some sense is dependent on us, right? 
Verse 13 like, makes it really clear that that's not the case. In the context, though, of what John is saying here, we should be reading this and saying, how is this possible? How could, given what John has just said about the nature of mankind, how could we be given the right to become his children? Another way that John uses to describe these people who, who receive him is that there are those who believe in his name. They believe in his name. In other words, here's what, here's I think what the text is getting at. The world, in the position of helpless unbelief, was entirely in need of the light. Rejecting that light by nature of who we are, those that love darkness, and yet God made a way that we might be awoken to sheer grace through faith in what he's done, and that's it. And that's it. In other words, the faith that John refers to here, those who believe in his name, as we'll come to find together, actually describes a kind of changed heart that brings about a new allegiance. That Christ has all authority in our lives. We trust in him completely. We trust in what he says over what culture says. We trust in what he says over what I think or the way in which my heart is inclined. And centrally, we trust in what he accomplished on my behalf so that I might know him rather than anything I think I can do to make myself right. And the reason I know that can't come from me is because of the metaphor and language that John uses in 13 that he'll come back to when he talks to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Who were born... Being born is not something you control, right? Your birth is out of your control, right? Okay. Who were born not of blood. Bloodlines, upbringing, racial and ethnic backgrounds has nothing to do with it. Nor the will of the flesh, your ability your ability to white-knuckle it, you know, to really get this done, to work hard enough that God might save you. Nor the will of man, your choice, but of God, his grace and his mercy. Listen, what has God accomplished? Remember the second part of the gospel definition from last week? John wants his readers to know that by his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin and he secured our justification by grace, not our works. In other words, he declared our, us innocent even though we were guilty by sheer grace. He stood in our place as our substitute. He received what we should have received for our sin at the cross. In other words, what John is really on about here. He's on about something. What he's on about is while humanity always rejects the light by nature of who we are, God made a way for us to receive by sheer grace opening our eyes to truth, that we might know him. And yes, we do respond by faith. We do receive the light. If that's true of us in our hearts, if God in his mercy and grace has come and done that work in our hearts, then it does transform our hearts. It does change us. But it's his work, you know? And going back to that idea that theology matters, what that means for us as believers is that John's primary emphasis, you know, it's on God rather than on us. And that's for our good. I think there's a part of us that pushes back and we're like, man, I feel so beat up on when I read about depravity. And, and I think the imp, that impulse, if I can just gently and pastorally push back and just say, I want you to consider, sometimes that impulse comes by way of our prideful hearts, still wanting to have something to do with my own salvation, still wanting to kind of be the one that did it, still kind of wanting to have to ha have played that part that I'm the one who saved myself, rather than seeing how great this good news is, like, it's, it's good for us. 
He comes to us out of his goodness. Not mine, praise God. You know, because I'm not good enough. Whose goodness? If it was your goodness or my goodness, we'd be in a lot of trouble. If, if like at the cross, Jesus repeats what that character in Saving Private Ryan does, if he looks at us at the cross and in his dying breath, rather than saying, it is finished, he says, earn this. <laughs> you know, we are in a lot of trouble because we can't. And we know that. But his goodness holds the promise. His completed work holds the promise. This text emphasizes his love for us, the depth of his love, the completeness of his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his heart for you. I love how Carson sums it up. He says, when John tells us that God loves the world, far from being an endorsement of the world, it's a testimony to the character of God. You know, when I tell you I love coffee, it's an endorsement of coffee. You can hear that as an endorsement of coffee. Coffee is inherently good. And there are a lot of reasons, right? Like I could, tell, I, could, I could list all the reasons why I would say I love coffee, right? It's not the kind of like love that God's talking about when he says that Jesus so loves the world. So when John tells us God so loves the world, far from being an endorsement of the world, it's a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. The world in John's usage comprises, Carson says, no believers at all. What this means is that those who come to faith are no longer considered of this world. They've been chosen out of this world. This is important. We're going to see that throughout John. This world comprises no believers. So when there are believers, Jesus will say, I've taken you out of the world. Right? You've been chosen out. Carson concludes, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, that says a great deal about Jesus. And the fact that it says a great deal about Jesus is great news for us who need someone to come and do work on our behalf entirely. So we should not be surprised, nor should our hearts become somehow numb to this weekly reminder of the extent of his love for us. His body broken, his blood spilled for a world that rejected him. You know, that's what we do at the table, and I think we do it weekly. The benefits of doing this at the table weekly, coming forward and reminding us of this, there's so many benefits of the table weekly. It forces us to read our text in light of the cross every week. It, it forces us to, to repeat the gospel that we're in need of repeating every single week. Maybe one of the downsides is there are times when our hearts can become somehow numb, or like, I do this all the time, it can become rote. I want to encourage that to not be the case. Because here we see this reminder of the extent of his love. We were under, Tim, Tim Keller puts it well when he says, right? He did not come into the world because we were so lovable, but to make us lovable. Though we were not lovable, he came and sacrificed his life that we might know him. And so if you're a believer, this meal is for you. I invite you now forward to take the cup and the bread back to your seats that we might partake together.